look again continually in our study of Mark's gospel, we come across a text of scripture here in chapter nine, verse 30 to 50, that on first glance, it kind of looks like just a, a combination of disconnected situations and stories and teachings that have all been kind of stitched together. And it actually looks more like, or seems more like a Jesus highlight reel than it is an actual watching a game. It's just put there to get you pumped up about the action, but really nothing more. But as we study this passage this morning, you're going to realize that there's actually a connective thread between these 20 verses and what we learned last week that actually carries over even into chapter 10 that we'll look at uh, next week. Now, last week, if you remember, we learned as we began the second half of Mark's gospel, there's a lot of things that shift in this second half. There doesn't, there's no longer what seemed to be the apparent wandering around of Jesus all over Galilee, teaching everyone, though he might, or whoever he could find. Starting in chapter 8, verse 30, there's a distinct shift in the narrative as the disciples become center-focused, that Jesus is concerned about having the disciples understand who he is and what he's about and what exactly it means to be a disciple of Christ. As we learned last week, it's not what they had expected. And so as we begin this morning, and especially in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 and 32, we have the second time that Jesus instructs his disciples about who he is, what his work is, and really what discipleship can entail, and they still don't seem to get it. Let me read it to you real quick, right there in chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there, what we looked at last week, they've now moved on, and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. There's that focus. He's now going to be focusing on the disciples, and you're going to see that all throughout the rest of Mark's gospel. The center of attention is going to be his disciples because he wants his disciples to understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ, a Christian, and what Christ's ministry was all about. So he didn't want people to know that he was there because as we learned from the first half, whenever people found out where Jesus was, crowds showed up. So he didn't want to people know. So he's keeping it quiet because he's focusing on his disciples. Verse 31, he says to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. Now, they still don't seem to get it, even though this is the second time Jesus talked to them about this, and I think right there, friends, is something we can pick up on that. Becoming a Christian can be something that happens in an instant. Going from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is something that Christ does, and it's an instantaneous transformation. But understanding what that means and the 10,000 implications that has for your life, for my love, life, can take a long time. And we see that repeatedly happening here. Jesus said last week that if any man or woman, anybody wants to be his disciple, it requires three things of that individual. And there there was in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, which is really that section that's launching us all the way through the end of chapter 10. He says, here's the three things. You need to de deny himself, they need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me to the point of losing one's own life. Now, the reality is, can I be honest, that is the last thing we want to do. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, 
denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and losing our lives for another is the last thing we want to do. But as he made very clearly in Mark 8, that is in fact how we have and experience true life, not just in the life to come, but this life today, but still what's required, because those are huge statements, aren't they? Deny yourself, pick up the cross, follow after Him. They need practical definition. What does that mean exactly? And so that's what this morning's passage, and that's what actually next week is about as well, to put some, so what I call teeth to these concepts so we understand what does Jesus mean by deny myself? What does He mean, pick up my cross? What does He mean, follow Him and to lose my life for Him? The first one is self-denial. And let's be honest, self-denial is not a very popular selling point in our society today, is it? I mean, think about it, friends. What is the only sphere that people actually talk about denying themselves? In our society, we are more used to self-indulgence, not self-denial. The only time I could think of when people actually deny themselves is when they're on a diet, right? That's the only time people say, no, no, I'm denying myself. But here's the thing. Jesus was not talking about Whole30. He was not talking about Cato. He was not talking about, I don't know, Miami, South Beach, whatever it is. That's not what Jesus means when he says deny yourself. But in a culture where that seems to be the only category we have, this can kind of land on us and we don't know what to do with it. And so Mark is defining out what that means, and we see that this morning. So next week, we're going to talk about two of the three things we need to do. Next week, we'll talk about picking up your cross. What does that mean? And following after Him to the point of losing our lives. But this morning, Jesus wants to define that first aspect of discipleship. Being Jesus' disciple really means denying sinful ambitions in our hearts. Being Jesus' disciple means denying sinful tribalism that we see in our world. Being a disciple of Jesus quite simply means denying sin. That's the three things that Jesus tells us this morning in our passage. Let's look at them one at a time. Being a disciple of Jesus means denying our sinful ambition. Mark chapter 9, this is verse 30 to 37, and as I mentioned, this is the second time that Christ speaks of His death and resurrection and discipleship, and the second time the disciples clearly don't understand. Now, remember last week, Mark told us, Jesus told them about His, his, his upcoming death, and He spoke plainly, but they didn't get it. We see here again in verse 32, Mark puts this editorial comment, we didn't understand and were afraid to ask. But in all fairness to these disciples, and again, we know the story too well, even if you don't go to church regularly, we know the story too well. In all fairness to these men, there was no category of resurrection at all. There had been nobody who had come back from the grave of their own accord for them, for them to even have a sense of what he might be talking about. The only understanding that the Jews at that time had of the resurrection was of the general resurrection of all humanity that Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 spoke about. They had no concept of these this individual kind of resurrection, let alone someone resurrecting themselves. They only understood this general resurrection, and even that, one of the main branches of their leadership, the Sadducees, didn't even believe in a resurrection nor life after this life. That's why we call them the Sadducees, because they were sad, you see. 
Okay, honestly, if you've been at a church, I know every, every pastor gets at least used that one time. I've never used it, so there's my chance. But they didn't believe. So, so there was no concept for, what's he talking about coming back? They didn't understand. And again, friends, here's another application. Look, if there are things you don't understand about Christ, ask. I mean, I know that seems so obvious that it has, doesn't have to be stated, but that needs to be stated. If there are things you don't understand, you ask. Honestly, if there was a woman in this group of disciples, the gospel accounts would have been totally different, right? <laughs> that was my daughter's first phrase. I have a question. I mean, that was the first thing my daughter asked, and she still says it to say, I have a question. But the disciples didn't ask. I almost imagine the conversation at home with the disciples and their wives. There's Peter with his wife, and she says, well, did you ask Jesus this question? No. Did you ask Jesus this question? No. Did you ask Jesus any question? No. He said he was going to die and come back. What else was there to talk about? Right? And that's why we're laughing, because we know women ask questions, but the disciples didn't. Maybe there was just too much confusion. Maybe there was too much pride because we're supposed to know and we don't say anything, but we ask. We ask questions. That's part of what the church's job is to do, to answer the questions that matter in life because, friends, the gospel is the only thing that has the answers for life. We have to ask. But thankfully, Jesus was kind. He knew that these disciples didn't understand the nature of discipleship or what he was requiring of them. And so in verse 33, he, he draws them out, right? He asks them, what were you guys talking about on the road? And even though they didn't understand entirely what he's getting at, there's a sense of embarrassment, so they keep silent, the text tells us, right? They keep silent because they were talking about, they were arguing about who amongst them would be the greatest, completely missing the point. And Jesus turns their world upside down. Their worldview shifts here. Jesus says, you want to be first, be last. You want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. Now, in our culture, servant leadership is not very uh, revolutionary. It's actually quite common, even if it's not being practiced as much. But this is precisely because Western society has been so influenced by a Christian worldview. So when we hear this, it just seems like that's, of course, what Jesus is going to say. But this was a radical departure from the time, uh, Jesus' time. This concept of servant leadership is so infused in Christianity, so affected society, which is why, by the way, politicians are called public what? Servants. In the United Kingdom, they're called ministers. Minister comes from the Greek, Greek word where we get the word deacon, a servant. They are to serve. Friends, this is, this is Christianity 101, this worldview, that we are called to be servants. Friends, if Mark 10, 45, which it is the key verse of, of, of the gospel of Mark, it is really important to understand. So I want you to kind of dip into chapter 10. I want you to see the contrast here. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, this is the key verse of Mark's gospel. For even the Son of Man, Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, if you're familiar with Mark's gospel, you say, well, yeah, of course. How was that surprising? I want to take you to Daniel chapter 7. 
And I want you to hear this title of Son of Man and just see the contrast between what Jesus said, that the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve. Listen to where the title Son of Man comes from in Daniel's prophecy, chapter 7, starting at verse 13, or take it to 14. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You could not get a more radical contrast. When Jesus talks about the Son of Man, everyone knows what he's referring to. And then he drops the bombshell. Friends, the first thing about being a disciple of this Son of Man, of Jesus Christ, is getting rid of the very human, very human tendency, desire of selfish ambition. Now, I want to be real clear. Ambition is not wrong. Ambition can, in fact, be a good thing. What Jesus is talking about is that selfish ambition seeks positions of power for personal gain and personal glory, but godly ambition seeks opportunities to serve for the good of others. And I need to make that clear because I actually think sometimes Christians don't have enough ambition, right? Because we believe in the virtues of humility, we read the self-denial, and we conclude that therefore ambition of any sort is wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying. Ambition is a good thing. Why are you ambitious is the factor, is the key. If you're seeking positions of power for your own glory, it is wrong and it needs to be denied. But if you're seeking opportunities to serve for the good of others, you need to pursue it. This is why, and it's, and it's a very fine line, isn't it, that separates the one from the other. It's a very fine line, which is why the Bible constantly calls us to pray for our civic, political, cultural, religious leaders. We must be constantly about that. But friends, this concept of being a disciple of Christ, this self-denial, isn't just for the grand big things like power, influence of wealth. It, this can be exercised in a thousand little ways throughout our lives that we are called to do. I'm going to take you to Philippians chapter 2. If you were here for our study of Philippians, this should sound very familiar. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. So see very clear, the Bible's not saying you're just a welcome mat and you don't matter. What Paul is saying here is don't just look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. This is an analog to what Jesus is teaching here. Let me ask you a question, friends. Bring this big concept down to where we live this morning. When you drove into the parking lot, were you looking for the best spot that you could find for you, right? When you grabbed a seat in the sanctuary, were you looking for the best spot for you, right? Right, 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 the center aisle, uh, right there, right in the center there, right? Friends, instead, when you drive into the parking lot, why don't you say, hey, listen, I'm just going to leave those spots at the front 
for, for people who may be injured or older or have young kids that they got to bring in tow. I'm going to park down in the lower lot. I'm a healthy guy. I'm a healthy girl. I can walk a little bit. I can hoof it up those steps. I want to leave those for others. You walk into the sanctuary. Here's a novel thing. Why don't you sit in the middle of the aisle so everyone else can sit in on those other aisle seats, right? On the middle of the pew. Right? Don't sit right on the edge so you can get in and out. Save that for other people, right? This is just two practical examples of things we do all the time. Little things of just thinking, how can I just deny myself for the good of somebody else? And there are 10,000 other ways we can do that. We just have to have our eyes open and be intentional. To highlight the point, look at verse 36, what Jesus does. Let get back to Mark 8 or Mark 9. In verse 36, Jesus takes a child and puts him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. And so uh, Jesus brings in this child, but let me kind of help you understand something, because our modern view of childhood distorts what Jesus' point is here. I think we have a very sentimental view of children, right? I love kids. I love seeing the kids here. You guys are always welcome here. But sometimes in our culture, we can almost idolize children, right? For example, all you got to say in public policy is, it's for the kids, and you can do whatever you want, basically, because everyone's about the kids, right? After all, they are the future, right? Teach them well, and they'll lead the way, whatever that song was, right? So, hey, if it's about children, it's okay. So people will read this passage, and they'll say, yeah, that's it. Self-denial like these kids. We've got to have the humility and this childlike innocence, and kids always want to serve other people. Okay, that is not what's going on in this passage, right? Uh, for one thing, that is, for one thing, that's not how kids are, period, right? I love children. I've raised three of them. My wife's a preschool teacher. She loves kids, and kids love her, but she'll tell you. They are not selfless, humble people always thinking of the needs of others. That is not, they are not the paragons of virtue here at all. That is not what Jesus is doing in bringing in this child. The reason being is in ancient culture, they didn't have a sentimental view of childhood. Keep in mind, in that culture, manual labor was hard, and it was necessary to survive until kids were at an age where they could carry their weight and contribute to the needs of the family. They were merely a burden. They were a kind of a, a hassle you got to deal with until they can carry their own weight. Jesus' point in bringing the child is not to say that children are a model of self-denial, but in fact, they are an example of the things that are little and insignificant in their society. And what he's saying is that if you can love and serve ones like these who have no consequence that you can easily dismiss, you are starting to understand what self-denial is about. Because, see, in your ambition, you want to serve those people with a big upside that can help you out in society. He says, no, bring, if you receive one like this, then you get what self-denial is about because they have no upside. They cannot return favors to you. They can't get you ahead. They just need from you. That's why he brings the child to them. So point number one in being a disciple is to deny selfish ambition. It's not about what you're going to get out of things. 
It's about what you can give to them because you are able to do so. So being a disciple of Christ means denying selfish ambition, but it also means denying what's recently being called in our society tribalism, and John the Apostle gives us a perfect example of that. Look at uh, verse 38. So John said to him, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, tribalism, if you don't know what that is, is often defined as putting one's own group above other, uh, excuse me, tribalism is often defined as putting one's own group above every other consideration, including kindness and justice. Putting your group above every other group for every other consideration, including justice and kindness. Now, on the harmless side of that scale, on the harmless side of it, that's what makes competition and sport rivalries fun, right? That, that, that's probably what's going on. We, we dress up in our team colors. We cheer on our mascot to embarrass their mascot. We hold up signs to encourage our players and make fun of them or whatever, whatever it might be. That's what adds to some kind of fun there. It gives a sense of belonging and identity. On the harmful end of that, though, this sense of belonging and identity can become idolatrous. And it can cause entrenched political divisions, racism, all manner of mistrust. See, the reality is, friends, the, the Bible understands this dynamic. On the one hand, this is part of human nature. What I mean by that is the Bible says in the very beginning, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, that human beings are designed to be social creatures. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. God made us to be in social relationships. God made us to draw our identity and meaning and sense of purpose from outside ourselves. The Bible is very clear in that because we are image bearers. Let us make man in our image to reflect our glory. So the Bible says human beings are social creatures and we were designed to draw our identity and purpose and meaning outside of ourselves because we're image bearers. But because of sin, we are completely unhinged from that ultimate meaning, identity, and purpose, and belonging. So guess what happens now? We will latch on to other forms of meaning, identity, and belonging, and we try to do the impossible with those. We try to make them carry the weight of all of our hopes, desires, and dreams, and they can't do it. And so my identity is no longer an image bearer of the king. It is I want to be seen as a competent worker, a great dad, a successful businessman, smart, fashionable, popular, whatever it is. You latch on to that meaning, and groups do this too. And when that identity is threatened, guess what happens? We get tribal. Your politics don't agree with my politics. So when you kind of threaten my political view, I get tribal on you because I am threatened by you. And that happens in all kinds of ways. Your ethnicity doesn't agree with my ethnicity, so if you attack my ethnicity, I get tribal. I don't see you as an image bearer, I see you as a them. And we see that dynamic happening, and I wonder if that's some of what, what's happening with John and the disciples right now. After all, this unnamed individual in verse 38 isn't this person doing the exact thing that the disciples were supposed to be able to do but couldn't last week? Let me take you to the passage. So the father says, so I asked your disciples to cast the demon out, and they were not able. 
And here's somebody in verse 38 that John sees casting out a demon and says, stop, you can't do that. But yet, they're the ones that are supposed to do it, and they couldn't. And here's somebody who's not even an official disciple, and he's doing, getting the job done. Now, of course, John, being like us, isn't going to come right out and say he's jealous or he's being tribal, right? No, so what does he do? He hides his real motivation through piety. Oh, Jesus, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. First observation, no one's supposed to be following us. We're supposed to be following Jesus. John, you're getting the priorities a little bit off here. We also see in verse 34, we also know that John was a part of that argument about who's the greatest. So there must be a little bit of self-inflated importance that's going on here that the situation's exposing in John's heart. Well, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're Jesus's 12. We're the ones that's supposed to do this kind of stuff, and yet they couldn't. Of course, Jesus calls them out, verses 39 to 42, but we need to recognize how easily, friends, it is to get into this mindset of tribalism. Friends, whatever your theological tradition, your political party, whatever your sports team, your ministry organization, your social justice cause, it's very easy to become tribal and it's always wrong. Being a disciple of Jesus means dying to the tendency to lift yourself above others through selfish ambition And it also means dying to the tendency to lift your group above others through selfish tribalism. And friends, this can happen in all kinds of subtle ways, and so we need to constantly be aware of it and fight against it. Let me give you an example. Um, For those of you who know me, I walk my dog, Napoleon. I don't have any pictures of him today, but I have this dog, Napoleon, and I walk him around the neighborhood every week. And about four or five houses down the block of my house, there's this, apparently they go to church because they have in their yard, it's like one of those, you know, those political signs that have the the wires and there's a sign on the middle of it. So planted in their yard and it says in big words, I love my church, right? And the name of the church is underneath it, like we're awesome community church or something like that. Now, I get what's going on, right? I mean, churches are cool. I mean, now churches are a brand, right? We've got merch. We've got swag. We've got, I mean, we don't. I mean, well, we have a sticker. But, but you know what I'm saying. Churches have water bottles. They got T-shirts. They got all kinds of, co- you know, coffee bars, all kinds of stuff, right? So I get that they love their church. And I get what they're trying to do, right? So I'm not against what's happening at one level. They love their church. That's great. But what's actually happening is a short-term gain for that church and a long-term loss for that Christian and the church. You can see what happens is, and, and I'm thinking not just what's going on at that church, but how we lead this church. If I get you to love Christ Community Church, you're like, man, they are awesome. They got like, uh, they got a book spot and um, the pastor's got a tattoo. What else we got going on here? Yeah, but this is a great church. And there are many of you who love the church, this church. I'm grateful for that. But if we stop there, it's like, oh, Christ Community Church is just the best, blah, 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 blah. And you don't love the church, what's going to happen is if and when you move from here, whatever church you go to next will be unfairly compared to this church. And I see this happen all the time. They're, they're, they don't do certain things that the pastor has his tattoo on this side rather than that side or, or whatever it might be. And you're like, oh, I don't like that church because of blah, 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 right? So I may have got you to love this church, but I haven't served you well because you don't understand what it's about. 
But see, if, if we can get you to love the church, the called out ones of God's people from all of time and history and culture for his redemptive purposes, for humanity, for God's glory, if we can get you to buy into that vision, you will love any church you go to. Does that make sense? So this, that, it's kind of a, a short-term loss from, for us because, you know, you're not carrying our swag around and our bumper stickers or whatever. But if you can love the church, that is a long-term gain for you and the church. Now, was that church trying to be tribal? Not at all. But I'm just not sure they were thinking through biblically well, as we learned last week, the things of God or just the things of man. And this is a great way to promote our church and get more people here, so that's what we're gonna do. Friends, we have to be aware of every tendency to put ourselves up above others. So friends, let me ask you a question. Is there a particular identity, group, or cause that you lift up more than you should? Are there ways you might be looking down at others because they do things differently than you? They don't do them as well as you, or they're just somehow not as innovative or cool or whatever it might be. Listen again, Paul's words in Philippians. Philippians chapter uh, 1, as Paul is writing from prison, he says this, starting in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, friends, discipleship means lifting others up. And you cannot do that if you're so busy using all of your energy, time, and resources to lift yourself or your own group up. And this is why we make it a practice of praying for other local area churches like this morning. This is why we make it a practice to use our time, our resources, whatever we have to be a benefit to other area churches as well. This is why we give away over $100,000 a year to missions. We do all this because we want to fight the so human tendency to be about ourselves. And we want to be proactive in serving others because we recognize our tendency to be about us. I'll be honest. This uh, card you got in the front in the pew or the three by three, I came up with this idea because I believe in it that we tell people that, hey, whether you plug in here or somewhere else, I, it's always the most unusual look I get from visitors. When, they, when I meet with them and I have a decent conversation, I say, did you enjoy your experience with us? They say, yeah, I did. Then I recommend three other churches that I think if you enjoyed us, you enjoy them too. And they look at me like, what the heck's going on, right? And, and on the back of our welcome brochure, we list a couple churches people should visit because we believe that the church benefits, regardless of what church you plug into. But you know that philosophy of mine got tested when I was in the palm court, and I heard some of you doing the same thing with visitors. I was like, oh no, they're sending them all away. <laughs> we had another family visiting with us. It was a great family, and it says, we're gonna take your suggestion. We're gonna go visit other churches. It's like, oh, we're gonna take your card to figure out how to do it. It's like, well, thank you. <laughs> but it's true, right? If these people plug into local churches and they give their lives away, they deny themselves, 
and selfish ambition and selfish tribalism, guess who's going to benefit? Everyone, right? Last point. Discipleship is that uh, uh, discipleship of Jesus means dying to sin. Look at verse 42 to 47 here. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire, verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown to hell. So here, there are, there are two warnings in this section. Did you pick that up? Verse 42 is a warning against causing others to sin or to stumble. And then verses 43 to 47 is a warning about committing sin yourself. First, Jesus makes it really clear. Right there in verse uh, 43, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. So I know what you're thinking because I thought the same thing. That's the better alternative? (laughs) It's better for me to have a millstone hung around my neck and thrown into the sea? Well, if that's the better alternative, then then I should hate to cause someone to sin. Or actually, the the word is uh, where we get the English word scandalous. It caused, caused someone to stumble. So whether you cause them to sin or stumble, Jesus says, look, if you're that kind of person, it's better for you to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and get thrown in the ocean. So just in case you don't know what a millstone is, this is that, that thing in the center is a millstone made out of just stone, all right? Imagine that being wrapped around your neck and thrown into the sea. Friends, if it's better to have that hung around our necks and be thrown into the sea than to cause someone to stumble, then it makes pretty good sense to ask the question, well then, how exactly might we be guilty of causing someone to stumble? Because if that's the better alternative, I want to make sure I don't violate this. Does that make sense? So to answer that question, we probably need to look at the context, which is verses 33 to 37. Notice the reason I say that, because in verse 42, Jesus says, if you cause any of these little ones to stumble, and in verse 37, Jesus brought in a child as an example of the littlest ones amongst us, right? So you see the connection there. So what he's saying, I think what what Jesus may be saying here is the cause of stumbling can be the failure to treat the little ones, the, the insignificant, the small, the powerless, the unpopular, the weaker, in a way that is not as important and significant as we treat the powerful, the influential. I I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, if if you're gonna cause someone to stumble, the context tells us, he's saying, if you ignore the little ones amongst you, the insignificant ones, the powerless ones, that's the sin he's talking about. And friends, this, this kind of thinking has crept into the church as well. And I get it, as a pastor of the growing church, it's, you want to use your time for people with the big upside, right? Spend my time developing leaders, spend time with those who are going to be disciplers of this other people, and I hear that kind of stuff all the time at, at pastor's conferences and all that kind of talk. But I think it's something, there's something very humanizing, spending time with someone who doesn't get it. Don't get me wrong, I love it when you come up to me and say, 
man, that message was awesome. I totally get it now. I love that. And I'll be honest, that person that comes up and says, hey, you got nothing for me. Uh, well, I fell asleep halfway through. That's actually very humanizing. To be reminded of the very truths we're seeing here, sometimes it takes a while, a long while, for the gospel work to continue, to, to sink in, for life transformation to take place. Jesus says, how are you spending it? How are, how are you denying yourself? Are you just hanging out with those who tell you what you want, who give you the accolades and all the feedback you like? Or giving your life away for ones who actually don't give you anything in return? I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Secondly, in this section, he says, don't cause others to stumble. How do we not do that? We treat everyone the same. We pour into those who don't have a big upside, who can't give us back. Secondly, in verse 43 to 47, discipleship means here, valuing heaven more than whatever pleasure, desire, or place in life sin can give or take you. By the way, that's, that's the point of the repeated phrase when he uses your hand, your foot, your eye. It's kind of all the places your feet take you, all the things your hands can do, and all the things you see. That's talking about his entire life. Friends, in short, being a disciple of Jesus means knowing how dangerous sin really is. Let me say that again because that's one of the things so obvious, but we need to hear it. Being a disciple of Jesus means knowing and believing Jesus when he says sin is dangerous. The Puritans had a great expression for this. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We can modernize that and say, look, either you deal with your sin or your sin's going to deal with you. That's just the way it goes. And friends, the Bible is not naive about sin. The Bible talks about sin has a pleasure for a season. That's why we like it. That's why it hooks onto us so strongly. There's something about it that we enjoy. And being a disciple of Christ means knowing and believing that sin is dangerous and to turn from it and that no matter how much you might like it, it is killing you all the time. The Inuit people, when I was growing up, we called them Eskimos, but now we call them Inuits. The Inuit people who live in the Arctic, they share their environment with an apex predator, the wolf. Now, if any of you know anything about hunting, hunting a wolf on their terms is nearly impossible. And so the Inuits devise a very ingenious way to hunt wolves using their weakness in mind, knowing that wolves cannot resist blood. And so what the Inuits have done is they basically get baleen, am I saying that right? B-A-L-E-E-N, baleen, yeah. Which is basically a, a whale, whale bone, and they spool it up tightly, wrap it with fat, and then blood, and freeze it. And then before they litter the landscape with these tasty little morsels, they coat it with a fresh bit of blood so the wolves can catch the scent. And then they scatter all these tasty morsels everywhere, and all they have to do is wait. And the wolves show up on the scent of blood, and they, well, they wolf down all these nice morsels, and the more they're eating, the more they're sealing their fate and have no idea. As these little treats go into their digestive system and the fat digests, the baleen unspools and all the bone shards shred their intestines and stomach. And all the Inuit have to do is walk after these hemorrhaging wolves till they drop dead in their tracks. Friends, sin is the same thing. 
And the more we consume, the more we seal our fate, and the whole time it's wrapped in something we love. And we lick our chops, and we think, yeah, give me more of this. And Jesus, of course, he's using hyperbole, but he's attempting to make the point that whatever you need to do to rid sin from your life, it will be worth it. That is what it is to be a disciple, to deny the drive of selfish ambition, to to deny the, the drive to just seek after those things that have a big upside to it, to serve away from the spotlight, away from the accolades and recognition, away from the ambition and the drive towards self-inflated importance. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to deny the tribalism that's so inherent in the human heart, to see everyone as a peer, that we're all equal, that we're all made in the image of God, scarred by sin, that we're beggars telling other beggars where we can find food, regardless of how different they might be from us. We're all in the same predicament under God's just holy wrath in need of His grace that is offered in Jesus Christ, denying the, the drive to circle the wagons and keep people out. As a matter of fact, the gospel always tries to bring people in. And then third and finally, be willing to go to any lengths, count any costs to deny sin's hold over your life. That's just one of the three things Jesus says, deny yourself, right? Next week, we'll look at pick up your cross and what it means to follow Him. But Jesus promises us in Mark chapter 8, if we do these things, that is how we find life. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.